the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast from Lloyd's List Intelligence, delivering you expert analysis on the stories shaping shipping. To find out more about our actionable maritime insight, data, and analytics, visit lloydslistintelligence.com. Forecasts are difficult, especially about the future. But shipping's focus for a while now has been squarely on 2050, when, let's face it, the majority of those making bold pledges about the industry's transformation are not going to be around to observe the accuracy of their current optimism. Setting out what's achievable by 2030, well, those goals are more difficult, arguably impossible. Reports setting out the likelihood of future scenarios for shipping's zero-carbon transition have become a pretty regular waypoint in helping us assess where we are. And I think it's interesting that the latest round of reports are much more circumspect about what's possible in the immediate future. But they're all stressing the importance of what's happening in the next few years. And I think they require a properly close read. In case it had passed you by, we are in a decisive decade for shipping. That's certainly the message that's being trumpeted this week at London International Shipping Week in the latest round of scenario-setting reports by the class societies, who have pretty much become our default forecasters these days. And that matters. It matters because the actions being taken, or more precisely, the actions not being taken, are obviously going to affect whether we hit the now massively accelerated decarbonisation targets set out by the IMO earlier this summer. And, spoiler alert, we're not going to hit them. Not even close, but we'll get to that in a minute. But it does also affect the likely long-term scenarios as well. It's not just about 2030, it is about 2040 and 2050, because, again, the investment decisions being taken now, or deferred now, directly linked to the 2040 and 2050 targets. I go back to the point that this is a decisive decade. The next two to three years are absolutely critical. The reports, and I'm going to leave you to read them for yourselves, uh, that's not what today's podcast is about, both DNV and Lloyd's Register have Outlook reports out this week, which you absolutely should go away and digest. But today I wanted to offer you some insights from those behind the reports. And I'm going to start with DNV because... Their outspoken chief executive, Knut Orbeck-Nielsen, has openly said that it is very unrealistic that shipping can meet IMO's new 2030 green targets. So why is this usually upbeat optimist, regular on the podcast over many years, suddenly so negative about the prospects of meeting the targets that everybody was calling for? I'm not negative about the ambition level. Mm. I, I just say it's unrealistic. And uh, that's two different things, actually, uh, because I think it's good to have high ambitions, but it, it's better to have ambitions that are, in a way, also achievable if we are moving ahead. And I think the 2030 level is unrealistic in the way that it, it will take a big contribution from better fuels to reach it. Mm. And considering that we're already only six years away from 2030, um, we have more clarity into that situation now. And, and that's why I say what I say. But I'm not negative, I'm just being realistic. Mm. And I think sometimes you have to put things into perspective and, um, and realizing that fuels will be difficult to obtain in that time frame. We have to do more of the other things. 
And the other things, like Eric pointed to, is naturally the speed, the slowing down. But it's also about the energy efficiency measures that will be extremely important. And I would like people to do something now rather than wait until mid-2030s to have more clarity on the fuel supply side. Eric Ovram is the brains behind that DNV outlook report. And given that he was the one who crunched all the numbers and looked at all the available scenarios, I thought it only right to get his take on where he thinks we're going to land by 2030. And if it's a question of us being off, as Knut suggests, then by how much? Well, there is quite a potential for significant savings with energy efficiency measures. And... uh, I think uh, what Knut said was very good, uh, that we need to take energy efficiency to the next level. Mm. And I think <clears throat> when we uh, accept that, yes, we need to take uh, responsibility for saving in our industry, but we're not alone and we're not uh, sharing. We don't. It's the, the resources of the new world are not only here for us. With that in mind, uh, that we take them energy efficiency measures to the next level and do as much as we can there. And then, uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm think i optimistic that we can really achieve significant reduction with uh, that. And then it uh, will be very interesting to see how much carbon capture can contribute in mm. the years coming because <clears throat> onboard carbon capture is uh, not competing so much with other with the decarbonization of other industries. It's interesting that both nuclear and carbon capture are featured this year, and you know this is the point at which both technologies are front and centre, precisely because I think most people have realised that without those as options, we are missing uh, a tool in the box in order to actually achieve what we say we need to achieve. You, you've done the studies on this. You, you, you are saying that you know these are feasible options, but obviously we need to develop the technology. I mean, in your view, how far off, you know, have you looked at a timeline in terms of where that is likely, or is that all most or entirely dependent on the availability of capital and the progress of, of some of the other factors that you've mentioned? Well, I think uh, it's there's quite some similarities between car- carbon capture on board and uh, ammonia and methanol as fuel, because mm. they are developing. So, and methanol is already ready for engines and tanks, so it's in use. Ammonia, we have engines being developed. We see, we will see them uh, sailing in a couple of years. Let's see, let's see how that works out. But it's on similar timescale for the technology on the ship for onboard carbon capture. And then it's about uh, developing the infrastructure for production of, let's say, ammonia. And the same way, it's for uh, for onboard carbon capture. It's about developing the infrastructure for receiving and sequestering that CO two. So I think uh, onboard carbon capture uh, could. Uh, we don't see any large problems technologically on the ship, but of course the infrastructure needs to be built out. So I think it's about uh, could have an impact before uh, this at twenty thirty. And for nuclear, I think it's uh, you know it's maybe a decade later. I mean, the last time I think you know. I spoke to class societies seriously about nuclear was uh, about six months prior to Fukushima. You know, the class societies were at that point pushing nuclear as an option. All of the plans were there. They'd been, you know, rigorously tested. You'd done all your due diligence. And then, of course, they went back into a draw swiftly afterwards and never to be seen again. 
I, it's been a it's been a long cycle to get them back onto the political agenda, and I think we are now talking about it as an industry sensibly and openly. But it's not just a technical problem, is it? It's, it's a PR and political problem that you're dealing with when it comes to nuclear. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And uh, I think back then you're absolutely right. We, we had reports uh, ready to be published and they went straight into the drawer for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, and that was basically around the public perception and acceptance. Uh, now we are exploring new uh, technologies around nuclear and um, one of them being the modular molten salt reactors uh, and th these are different and it's going to be, uh, you know, one thing is to mature and develop the technology which, which might be eight to ten years out. Um, the second point that you make is how to make it sort of acceptable to the public and, and make it you know, make politicians also aware that this is an important piece of a toolbox, as you say, to, to go green. Mm -hmm. um, and um, where that is uh, going, it's difficult to say at this stage. I think we will need to have the technology uh, to pilot it, and it's important to pilot it in safe and controlled circum uh, or environments, and then uh, then we'll see where that goes. But obviously there's going to be, say, a, a, an interesting point where we are faced with reaching the targets or having to explore technologies that for some reason might not be popular in the public eye. And, and that's going to be an interesting political debate and it's not so much up to yeah, shipping people and industrialists, but this is more for the, for the governments and the NGOs and, uh, and all the like. Back, if you don't mind, to the, the question of demand signals, which we've heard a lot about. And post-MEPC80, again, it being a, a, a pretty uh, punchy sort of series of, uh, of long-term goals that we have committed ourselves to as an industry. The industry then went away on its summer holidays and has now come back. And this is probably the first major meeting that you know we as an industry have had to get back together and, and talk about these things face to face. I've been talking to producers and uh, you know people involved in uh, various projects that are sort of getting close to FID, and I think the jury is still out. Um, and I note that even within the U.S., where you know, let's be honest, the Inflation Reduction Act is probably the best set of tax breaks and economic circumstances you could hope for in a generation right now to develop blue uh, ammonia or, or hydrogen projects. And we are still seeing some of those projects being pushed back. What does it take to get those demand signals to actually translate into decisions? Because I'm not quite sure what we're missing here in this equation. Well, it is a rather, say, complex issue altogether. And I mean, we are, say, we are really going back to geopolitics and we are going back to energy security. And um, what Eirik uh, has pointed out is that even if we develop a lot of renewable electricity, it's a big loss on the way if you want to convert that electricity to some kind of fuel that the shipping industry can use. Mm. And these days it makes much more sense to send that electricity straight into the grid and, and provide energy for the industries uh, that need it. 
And um, you can say the same about gas. It's also needed for industry. So, um, so this is really, you know, again, we are, say, the industry of shipping is a, a small fish in a large pond and there are many other needs and, and interested parties out there. And that is what makes this quite complex. And I'm sure that uh, you have also probably been talking to, say, producers of, of greener fuels. They don't even have shipping on the radar. No. They are looking elsewhere. So, I mean, that's why we are saying that, you know, 2030, it's such a challenging task to really meet those goals. And then, I mean, 70% by 2040 is not a walk in the park either, but we will need to to see something develop. But I think those discussions have been had. I think the reality is that they are too far off in terms of that price gap. Um, shipping is not a... It is not perceived as a strategic industry. It is not supported. I know protectionism is still a dirty word within European circles, but you know governments are prepared to support strategic industries, potentially cars, potentially steel. Shipping is not in that equation. Shipping is at the back of the queue, um, you know, and that is a problem. It's, it's shipping's position within the global macroeconomic global macroeconomic context here that we're talking about. This is economics, not politics. Um, you know, it, it is all very well for us to sit here and talk about the, you know, the efficiency measures. And I agree, you know, we can obviously you know, reduce and uh, there are many things that we could do that we are not doing. But there is a, a tipping point here that the fuels need to be there. And it's not just a question of whether they are there, it's whether they are available to shipping. And I, I guess that is the unknown aspect of, of all of it. You can do all the sums, but these are things that we just we are not going to be aware of until it is too late, I guess. Yeah, that's uh, the hard... I mean, it's hard enough to understand the sums of the potential, how much is going to be supplied at all. And then uh, others have tried to uh, predict how much goes to shipping in other industries, and I thought uh, we thought that that was way too uncertain to say anything about them. But there mm. are large... Like you real time to mention in the Laura Bagatin mentioned in the debate, they need the hydrogen for steel production. Mm. Others need it for other things. So uh, it's a huge competition uh, for other industries that also need to decarbonize. So, so touching upon that to see how much will go to shipping, that's a very hard question. Yeah, and if I just may add, so you say it's not shipping is not strategic. It's not strategic in the context of. of national politics but i would say that we saw that during the pandemic that uh, you know shipping has a very important role to play in in the world economics but the the consequence of not providing the fuel is not that shipping will stop it's just that it will continue to run on whatever is available and um, and that means that that will be the challenge also to meet the ambition level because there are other priorities that will you know, come in the four. Mm. And we're talking in the month that I think Maersk is going to be launching its first methanol dual fuel ship. It's coming into Europe and will be named by the uh, European president here. We're going to see a lot of news coverage about this. And I think it is, uh, you know, it's a positive story, certainly for shipping. And, and Maersk have been transparent about how they've done that. But I think it's fair to say that Maersk, you know, if you, if you, treat, if you speak to them, 
they're the first to admit that that was not the end goal. That was what they could do at that particular point, and they've effectively had to create their own supply chain in order to do it. Um, that's not a replicable um, uh, strategy for many others, and yet your own numbers suggest that you know 8% of the current order book that's dual fuel is methanol. I wonder whether that 8% is going to be quite so... Um, um, you know, uh, mindful of, of how it is getting the green uh, versions of methanol into their tanks. Do you, do you think that there is a danger with the influx of dual fuel methanol, certainly, which obviously still contains carbon, um, that we are bedding in a, a, a generation of uh, ships that are effectively going to extend fossil fuels in one way or another? Well, I think what Eric um, pointed to in the report is that we see the transition on the technology side is taking place, um, whilst the fuel transition is not really happening. So many owners are, you know, making bets on, on what's available and they obviously want to avoid stranded assets and that's why they go for dual fuel solutions. And at this point in time, unless you know your routes more specifically or you have really big balance sheets um, methanol seems to be the less capex intensive uh, flexible option that you can have at this moment mm. and that's why many do it um, i don't think many i mean if they can source it they will maybe use it for special purpose but in many many cases these vessels will continue to run on the ordinary fuels and um and then just wait and see what's available, when, to which price, and, and then it's all a commercial calculation. But we could see, theoretically, a generation of dual fuel ships that never see a molecule of the green fuel coming into their tanks. Theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yes. Okay, so that's the outlook according to DNV. And full disclosure, this podcast is sponsored by DNV. So we are going to pause for a message from them before we move on. Maritime decarbonisation targets are becoming more ambitious, and the journey ahead is both complex and full of uncertainties. DMV's latest Maritime Forecast to 2050 report investigates all decarbonisation options to help shipping plot the right course. This is the decisive decade for shipping. Actions taken now will shape our future for generations. Download the report at dnv.com and join us on this journey. Okay, welcome back. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are entire rainforests of reports on climate change available right now, some of them more credible than others, I would suggest. But in addition to DMV's outlook, which I genuinely think you should read, I would also add to your bedside table reading list the latest analysis from UMass at University College London, and we will feature some of that tomorrow via Tristan Smith, but also the latest exercise in future casting from Lloyd's Register. Their Global Maritime Trends 2050 report, also out this week, sets out four likely scenarios for shipping, ranging from an ideal of collaboration and technological advancement to a more dystopian, fragmented future where, suffice to say, things get worse, a lot worse. I caught up with Ruth Bonfrey, Chief Executive of the Lloyd's Register Foundation, and Claudine Sharp-Patel, the new Technical Director at Lloyd's Register, uh, to discuss why it is so important that we consider shipping's future as being part of a much wider series of interconnected factors than simply looking at zero-carbon fuels. Here's Ruth, and apologies for the background noise in this section. Now, the reason we commissioned this report is so that we can give an evidence base to the sector
actor to look out beyond uh, the, the sort of two, three planning horizons, which normally happen in a boardroom, and to take a good look at the future and the range of scenarios that can happen, which the maritime industry need to know about. So if we look at some of the key drivers which are changing our world, uh, there's climate change, and that is especially um, important for our sector because climate change will drive an increase in sea level and also an increase in storminess. And the infrastructure, which costs so much and needs so much advanced planning, needs to take that into account. In addition to climate change, uh, there is um, a change in demographics of 2 million extra people being added to our planet over the next 30 years. Those 2, million people will, uh, 2 billion people will be in a different part of the planet. They'll be in Africa, they'll be in Southeast Asia, and that will change supply chains. It will change the way that we um, crew our vessels, and it will change also the energy production, the, the places where energy is produced and where goods are needed. The third uh, sort of key driver is around technology. So if you have uh, an increasingly digitized and increasingly AI and in increasingly autonomous way that society is organized, which we include the maritime sector, that provides different opportunities to, to, to maritime. And the fourth, as we've seen you know, very much lately in the last few years, is the geopolitics that are associated with our industry. So as an inherently global industry, um, we, we see our geopolitics, the, sort of the problems between large uh, economic powers, really changing the way that we act and the way we make agreements. So that's a really big picture context. The maritime system, because it's so important to the future of humanity, because it keeps us, our goods and services moving and it keeps our energy moving, needs to be resilient to that change. And it can't do it just by looking at small technical problems. In the best case scenario, collaboration is key and progress is made. In the worst case, the ports of Houston and Shanghai disappear underwater. That's quite a range. So I asked Claudine Sharp-Patel, the technical director at Lloyd's Register, for a view on what's driving the different outcomes in these scenarios. The, the challenge we have in the industry is it's always been focused on the tangible, which is essentially what fuels can we use. And everyone is vying... In, so if you think about our, our world, it, the driver has been energy companies. It's been minerals and, and uh, commodities that have driven where we need to go historically for a very, very long time. And now we're in a position where we actually have to think outside the box. If we want to get to the first scenario, which is essentially uh, green hydrogen by 2050, we can't just say, right, that's it, we're there. There's a lot of steps that need to be going through. And it can't just be considering, you know, is it methanol? Is it ammonia? Is it hydrogen? Is it nuclear? Is it fuel cells? Is it swappable energy? Because not every state and the country around the world can provide those solutions. Not only can they not provide it, to put in the infrastructure for a supply chain to do so, it's just phenomenal. And it's, it's one of those very difficult things. It's a lot of infrastructure. It's a lot of development. And so the world has to actually look at this and go, we need to be more globalised. And if you look at the green one, which is just gradual, that includes how do we get technology advancing without actually leaving others behind? Because it's fine to say, we're all going to go hydrogen, we're all going to go ammonia, but if you don't have the supply chain, you don't have the ports in, in, in um, parallel with you, you're not going to make it. The vessels will turn up somewhere and they won't be able to discharge. You'll have scenarios, for example, if we don't change our regulation, a vessel, a distress vessel carrying ammonia or hydrogen may not be allowed into a port. If you think of prestige, they weren't allowed into a port when they were breaking apart. They had to stay out there. 
So, and that was oil. Imagine with something like ammonia, which the toxicity is just beyond compare. So unless we're actually joined up and we do a global approach, we're going to have a, a bunch of sh vessels out there that can be stranded. And I think there's going to be a push towards feeder vessels. So you'll end up having smaller hubs, but having feeder vessels. So maybe it, vessels don't actually go into the pool. And I think that's a lot of where we're going to go, but it has to be a group uh, progress. We're having this conversation in the context of London International Shipping Week, and there's obviously a huge amount of events and people are tackling the big dramatic changes in the industry. But from what I've seen, the industry likes to talk about fuels. There's events about methanol, there's events about hydrogen and ammonia. We like the tangible things that we can deal with as an industry, not the bits that are out of reach. What this report brings home, of course, is that it's not just about that. It's about much more than that. And many of the levers that we need to pull are unfortunately outside of the control of the industry. But we need to have a more holistic conversation. So there's a couple of things I want to say about the way the industry thinks, and it, which is about how binary it is. If you, if you think about the fuel question, even, even that discussion around fuels is trying to push, is it going to be this one or that one? Well, that's not, that's not how it's going to be. It's going to be a big old mix of different kinds of fuels uh, used by different kinds of vessels, you know, from the, from the large sort of cargo to right to the small port vessels and support vessels. There'll, there'll be a huge mix of fuels in the future. And it's the same with these scenarios in our futures report. You know, none of these scenarios will happen by themselves. Actually, it would be a blend of scenarios. Uh, and so we have to uh, prepare ourselves for complexity. You know, the future is complex. The changes that we're going to undergo are complex. And we have to think differently about resilience. You know, how do we prepare for a range of scenarios, not just trying to predict risk, you know, a risk-based approach, but take a resilience-based approach? Because whatever the future looks like, we haven't predicted it yet. It's going to be a different future from any of the things in this report, and the fuel mix will be a completely different fuel mix from any of those in the report. But what we can do by producing data like this and helping with those sort of scenarios is get people thinking, get them people prepared, and get people moving there quicker, which is the key thing for our planet. Do you think we are starting to cut through the noise? Are you starting to have the right conversations with your clients? And are people asking the right questions over you? They're starting to. They're, they're trying to see the longer term rather than what they can do in the midterm and do something that may not be a safe option. So people are looking at, actually, we, we've got vessels for the next 15 years. How do we make what we have suitable and as a step forward until we have to put that huge investment in and think about vessel the next vessel which will be for another 25 years and that can be a retrofit that can be lng which is a very viable option but the biggest thing that we need to look at is actually the vessel's crew because uh, I, i've been in companies where you've gone from uh, a traditional lng steamship and then you've got lng and it's a motor vessel and the competencies you've got on there are completely separate. And we're now talking about saying, okay, you're all container ships or bulk carriers where you've not had to carry cryogenic fuels, you've not had to have any exposure to any difficult uh, liquids or, or fuels, and now I'm asking you to bunker it, so we've got competency issues between ships and shore, and then you've got to manage that on board a ship. So for me... Energy transition can't happen by itself. It has to have AI, it has to have autonomy because a lot of the safety systems that we envisage 
to manage some of those fuels, if that's the way we're going to go, will need that input. It will need that credibility, that safety net, which means people are going to have to have different skills. They're going to have to be... Yeah, I think about my daughter, she's eight. She knows how to use my phone and the electronic equipment way better than I do. And, and eight. So imagine what skills we're going to need for those coming up who are going to have to have a much more intuitive understanding of of autonomy and AI, not something, oh, it's a natural learning program or, or etc. It's it's something that they're going to be intuitive in and it's going, to, it's going to be embedded in how they work on board a vessel. And it may be the way we actually look at a vessel and say, right, we're not touching the engine uh, equipment, something goes wrong, there's redundancy, and maintenance is not done by someone on board the ship. It's an isolated event and it gets done mate every five years or when it goes into survey it has to be a total mind shift a total mind shift indeed look i'm not here to plug these scenarios or these reports but i do think they are worth reading as part of that re-evaluation that we all need to make about what happens next the marketplace of ideas requires an open dialogue as somebody put it to me earlier today we will be picking up some of these ideas certainly in future editions but that is it for today i'm afraid We are going to be back again tomorrow with more. And then on Friday, the plan is to get the Loisless team around the microphone to offer you a few considered insights from the week. For today, though, thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you to our sponsors, DMV. And thank you to everybody who is making London Shipping Week genuinely uh, an engaging discussion. Stay safe out there.